Hello, good afternoon and welcome. It's Thursday. You always have to remember the day of the week because when I first started this, I thought I'd only do them on Fridays. So it'd be easy for me to say it's the Friday show live. And now I seem to be doing them every day at different times. So it is the Thursday show live. It's half four and it's uh, other times somewhere else in the world. I've got a really special guest. I said to him just before in the green room, it's the, one of the first I've done in 100 where I feel feeling some nerves. Which I don't, which I don't normally get. So uh, I've got to be on my on my game today. So I'm going to introduce him in a minute. Uh, as always, just like to thank some of my community patrons that have been supporting my channel. So Hive Group, Tarsus Group, Easy Fares, Rarisney Insurance, Nineteen Group, and Smart Digital. And my website is now up and running after a number of months trying to get it done. So go to danassaw.com. Uh, to catch all of my shows on demand, all of my schedules. You can watch them on, uh, all, listen to them audio on Spotify and obviously visually as well. So my very special guest today, um, he's an award-winning entrepreneur, a podcaster, a best-selling author. Uh, various media and social media platforms, including Amazon, have called him a top influencer on the web. And Double Dutch have called him one of the most influential event professionals is in the world as did Eventbrite. So that's why I've got a bit of nerves. So good afternoon to Jason Allen Scott. Sawabona. Greetings and salutations, my good man. Thank you. I'm uh, I'm very I'm, I was really looking forward to this. So hopefully we're gonna we're gonna do a good job. And sure. we were just discussing Jason. I'm a North Londoner. You're South London. So uh, I really should ask you first, what are the merits of living in South London? <laughs> I'm on the river. I can take a, a scuba, better known as an Uber boat. Into okay. London, which I absolutely love. I feel like I'm a, I'm a cast member of Grey's Anatomy. I can run to the front of the boat and put my arms out and hope someone holds me as handsome as uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> and I get to see the river every night, which I love. Right. I do a run on the river. It's got a great community. I'm in an enclosed space. It feels like a bubble inside a bubble. We've got yeah. a gym and a cinema and a private suite. And everything kind of works on a subscription base, which is pretty much how I work my life. So I love it. Fantastic. I mean, we've got some of those things in North London as well, but it's fine. We're, we're, we'll let you have them over there. So I've introduced you. I mean, you've obviously done a range of things uh, very successfully in your life. Hmm. I gave you an introduction, which I just stole off your LinkedIn profile. How would you introduce yourself? As someone that has lived life on his own terms, who realizes the preciousness of both time, commitment and relationships, and hopes that when he dies, he can answer three questions with absolute confidence. Did I live? Did I love? And did I matter? Wow. Uh, that's the end. We should just end it there. <laughs> I, I don't know how I, can, I can't go on for that. I mean, I, I feel very emotional. That's, um, that's, that is some deep stuff for a Thursday afternoon. We're going to talk about, I know you're very, very busy and you've kindly given me about half an hour. So I'm going to get straight into it. We're going to cover a few topics today. Um, should I just to say everyone that is listening live, and we've got a few, um, thank you also for people that are watching on demand. We're going to talk about entrepreneurship, influencers, and um, also working from anywhere, remote working, and a bit about your new business, um, Copas. But let's start off. Entrepreneur, I was looking up the definition, as you tend to do when you, we talk about these things. I've got various definitions, but I'm going to read one out, which I think I got from the Cambridge Dictionary. Um, not that I own one, everybody, but I found it online. A person who organizes and manages any enterprise, especially a business, usually with considerable initiative and risk. Do you concur with that? 
I do indeed concur. <laughs> nice catch me if I can reference Leonardo DiCaprio fans. Um, I, I, de I definitely do. I was talking to someone recently, a part of the founding network, big shout yeah. out to them. And there's an entrepreneurship networking community. And they said, well, how do you define entrepreneurship? Can you learn it? Is it, you know, is it innate? And I said, I believe it. I believe it's a learnable skill. I think, okay. I think it's a nurture thing. I grew up where everyone was in a trade. We're very much poor. Um, so hoping for working class, dreaming yeah. of working class. The best my family ever thought I could get is a plumber, uh, which would have been a great career, a great actually. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And we, that was the dream. That was the absolute goal. I'm the first person in my family history to get out of high school. So, wow. you know, we, we had some real lofty ideals. And I kind of really love the idea of an entrepreneur. I love the idea of using your own initiative, taking on risk and trying to minimize it as much as possible and providing yourself with the life you wanted versus working for someone else and being forced to do what they wanted you to do. Sure. So you think it's um, it's a bit of nature, I guess, because how do you know, like, you know, I grew up in a you know, middle-class background in North London. I guess I was always going to go to university. I didn't, I didn't even think about not going. I always th just thought I'd get a job. And then obviously build and build from there. In a funny way, are you suggesting that if you don't have all those privileges, it's a you, it's a struggle? So you strive, and then you end up becoming an, an entrepreneur by by default. I believe I believe that necessity is the mother of all invention, yeah. and hence, if you're forced into a position where you don't have as many opportunities, yeah. it's far easier, as horrible as that word is to use in this particular context, to become an entrepreneur. To go, yeah. I can't find a job. The world is against me. I'm, you know, for whatever reason, at least in the in the areas that I want to be working. So I'm going to create my own role. I mean, my very first company ever. I was seven years old. I wanted to see the circus, so I invented a circus, and I got the kids oh, to wow. play parts, and I got the parents to pay for tickets, yeah. and we all got together in the in the uh, what you would call a um, what do you guys call it over here? Uh, the those council flats we had a, a yeah. group of council flats yeah. and we put together a circus in the middle of the council flats and all the parents paid whatever they could to come around and watch and we used that money to buy sandwiches and juice and fruits and and that was it that's yeah. i invented a circus because we couldn't afford to go to the circus and then i did a t-shirt company because it was the easiest business i could possibly find outside of a lemonade stand um, and so grew my entrepreneurial skills. Yeah, you buy a T-shirt for a, for a pound, you get a print yeah. for fifty p. You charge two pounds fifty. You now know, you know that you've got exactly one quid per item to make in profit. So it's a real easy way to start a business, and that's that's how I did it. I mean, yeah. And you just kind of keep building on that. Your confidence grows as your success grows, which I think is something else you don't talk about, or people don't talk about in entrepreneurship. If you have failure after failure. Yeah. It is far harder to continue to be an entrepreneur than it is to have success, build on success, build on success. Yeah, I agree with you. Because also, I mean, life gets in the way. It's all very well saying I can keep going and starting businesses, but, you know, you need finances and backing and time to do that. Also, I think that as you get older, if you follow a, a, a typical path, you, you have more responsibilities, right? So whether that's 100%. a family. Um, and so your ability to take risk, I guess, is minimized. Your, and that, your, yeah so yeah that you, you've absolutely nailed it on the head yeah it's about risk whether it's the risk of time ratio whether it's financial risk and you're taking a chance to speculate by buying something and trying hoping to reselling it 
whether it's the risk of opportunity saying, well, I'm going to try and be an entrepreneur versus being a plumber, as we mentioned before, that risk profile is always there. Now, I've, I'm not a typical entrepreneur in the way that I take on big risks. I, in fact, try and make the risk as small as humanly possible. As Warren Buffett says, I look for hurdles I can step over, not have to leap over. So I've always done that. But I say that I've not taken on the risk profile of a wife and kids and a house. I always made my standard of living as low as humanly possible so that I could take bigger chances and sure. know that the worst that's going to happen is I'm on ramen noodles for a month sure. or I'm stuck eating, you know, not being able to watch Netflix and I won't have any TV, but I can listen to radio or I've always known there was, I could live, I could live pretty rough so I can take bigger chances. Yeah. And it's just me for the longest period of time. Yeah. It was just me. So that is a massive difference to someone supporting the family, supporting a partner, supporting a loved one, a family member that's maybe not well. It's a lot harder. So my hat yeah. goes off to, to yeah. everyone that has to go that way. Having said that, I've read various books where um, people over a certain age, you know, have, have made it big. Um, whereas before they've tried or they've, they've worked for somebody and for whatever reason, they found themselves in a situation that they have to go out on their own. They've got no choice. And um, we can talk about entrepreneurship for ages, but I'm going to move on. But um, at this time, especially over the last 12 months, I've interviewed and I do a new business hour now uh, for event professionals that have lost their jobs, that have had to set up new businesses rather than wait to be employed again. Mm. Do you think it's a good time to, to strive out on your own and be an entrepreneur? It's the best time in, in possible. It, it, yeah. There isn't a better time. The best times for entrepreneurship are in times of struggle. So in what many in the stock market would call, I think it's a bull market, right? When things yeah. go down versus a bear market, uh, or it might be the other way around. No, it's a bear market. So it goes down, oh, no. it goes to hibernation. If I knew, I wouldn't be sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's a bear market. So here's what happens. People don't realize yeah. this. When yeah. people are spending a lot, there's a lot less chance for them to try something new. When, when things were great, no one was going to get a part-time job as an Uber driver. No one was going to rent out their spare room to Airbnb. But when things were bad, 2008 financial crisis, and you needed a way to make extra money, you were more than happy to take on a job as a driver for a taxi rank. You were more than happy to rent out your room to a stranger you didn't know who came in and paid you per day. So there's real opportunity in struggle. There's real opportunity in down markets. We've seen the biggest jump in financial wealth since the Great Depression with this recent one year in the pandemic, $13.2 trillion Forbes said is the new amount of money just by the billionaires on their list. Now they've never seen so many billionaires in history. They've never seen such a jump in wealth in the space of one year. Why? Because people are willing to try things in times of yeah. despair, right? McDonald's, it was during the great depression. You know, you wouldn't think a hamburger stand would do as well, but people were willing to try something new. They were willing to, to go for something easier, something quicker. As far as entrepreneurship goes, I think the biggest problem or challenge comes from my generation and your generation versus the millennial generation and the Gen Ys below that. Because what we used to do is we used to build it and then hope they come, right? If you build it, they will come. That was our dream. That was the film we were sold. We believed that to be. So we would open a shop, we'd open the doors and we'd wait. Well, the new generation is far smarter. They go out and ask people, what do you want? Pay me up front, then I'll go off and build it. And yeah. that's safe. That's when entrepreneurship is far safer than it is to have a job. When you have a job, you've only got to upset one person. And I know I've pissed off a multitude of people. <laughs> and you lose your job. I now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where now I've got to piss off over 116 different clients to lose my company. Yeah. It's far easier, it's far safer. 
to have a, a startup, have a, have a yeah. lifestyle business than it is to go and look for a role. Roles are, are getting lost every single day. Whereas people who start companies have a better chance if they work smart. Don't work hard. Trust me, there are hardworking laborers out there that will work harder than any entrepreneur in the history of the world will. But they're not working smart. They're not making sure their money works for them. They're not looking at different ways in which they can yeah. utilize network, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a big piece people don't realize is lower your risk profile. How do you do it? By spending the least amount of money possible and giving yourself the most amount of opportunity. Yeah. I absolutely agree. And I think, you know, for those listening that are sort of, wavering or they've just started a business or they're going to start a business as you said i think now is the time mm. you know if you're sitting there and you're out of work what's to lose you know i've been in this position i've built this i'm not saying it's fantastic i'm just saying you can build something and i knew nothing about what i was doing and some might say i still don't but you know <laughs> you, you can build something out of nothing and then you, and then it opens doors right into other things even back into employment if you want to so Think, Absolutely. You know, and again, look at look at the biggest disruptors in the world. They weren't from their sector. No one in Airbnb was from the hotel sector. No one in, in Uber was from the taxi sector. Right. And those are two of the biggest companies in the world. No one at Coinbase was in the um, disruption, uh, decentralization, NFT, crypto market. These are, are people who see a need, see an opportunity, see a fan base. And that's another big thing. Never before in history has there been an opportunity for creators, people like you, people like me, to yeah. make money just off our creations. If Picasso had the world we have now, he would have been a billionaire. He couldn't find an easy way to make enough money to survive. We can, we can have a podcast, we can yeah. find a thousand people that love us and give them a way to spend a hundred quid over 10 months. That's 10 quid a month over 10 months. That makes me a six figure salary as a yeah. podcaster. When would that have been possible? Let alone a YouTube creator, a merchandise yeah. creator, all the other opportunities, affiliates, partnerships, JVs, influencer marketing. There's so many opportunities now because of this, because of the World yeah. Wide Web. So, which which is a nice segue onto the next topic, influencers. So, I'm not going to define this one because it's it's such a broad topic, but how would you define what's an influencer for people that aren't? familiar with it so there's there's two there's two answers to this question and i was i was on a panel a couple of years back probably the worst panel of my entire life with a couple of people we both know um and it wasn't their fault at all but it was because yeah. of the, un, the unidentified word influencer yeah. now we are all influencers every single human being on the planet if they know one other human being is probably an influencer whether yeah. that's to say have you seen the queen's gambit on netflix and i quickly click over to netflix you've just influenced my decision we've been doing that since caveman time when one person ran back to the cave and said avoid the apple tree where it's gone slightly green it'll make you see fairies versus the red apple tree which is making us all feel really good okay great that person influenced the community what we're talking about today when we talk about influencers and this is what i was talking about the panel is who makes money out of content out of yeah. influencing their audience to purchase a product or service and that is difficult it's easy to start a podcast it's easy to start a blog it's easy to start a youtube channel it's never been easier in history but to make money off it to take a group of passive people who watch or listen into active in which they go and do something sign up for your newsletter click on the subscribe button come to these events that aren't on demand buy your merchandise buy your mentorship like all the ways in which you can monetize your skills as a creator that's what an influencer is today and they're micro influencers with a thousand that are far more powerful than those with a hundred thousand who get no active participation no real fanship 
it's just passive watching. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously, I was doing some research for this, and there's reams of like a nano influencer and a micro influencer. But actually, what you just said in terms of anybody being an influencer and even taking it back to sort of events, which we're, we're both in, promoting an event that's influencing. Um, you wrote the book. Sorry, go on. No, no, no. I was just going to say that 100% correct. Like if, you, yeah. if you're using your influence to drive people to your event, you're an yeah. influencer by the, yeah. the, the macro term. Yeah. So you wrote the book on this, Make Money Podcasting, How to Start, Grow and Monetize um, Podcasts, which I will buy, obviously. Oh, I'll send you a copy. <laughs> Don't buy it. <laughs> Don't buy it. Don't buy it. I'll send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> You're not, I'm sure you're not meant to say don't buy it. Well, enough people have bought it. Um, no. What are, obviously, can you distill it into a few sort of key uh, components? Because, and I'm going through this, right? You made a good point. It's very easy to set this up, okay? It's not It's not difficult. No. But because of that, because of the low barriers to entry, there's so many people doing it. And I know, you know, I'm getting good traction, but on YouTube, it's almost impossible to get someone to click on the bloody subscribe button. <laughs> yeah, because because there's 14 algorithmic factors on YouTube, 14 yeah. of which you can control four. Yeah. Now think about the unfair. If I said to you, I'd like you to play football with me. Yeah. So I'm assuming you like football because you're in North London. So I'm, I'm, a, Chelsea I'm, fan. I'm a Chelsea fan, not there Spurs or Arsenal. <laughs> first, first team I ever saw play was Chelsea, uh, funny enough, versus Spurs. Um, <laughs> So here's the thing. So if I said to you, I'm going to want you to play a sport with me, whereby there are 14 rules of action, which I will judge you against, of which you can control four, come and yeah. play. You'd say, there's no way I'm playing that game. Let alone am I spending time or money on that effort. Yeah, the odds are stacked against you, yeah. Odds are stacked against you. Yeah. There's motion creates emotion. The fact that the camera constantly moves. There's editing tricks. There's the breaking of psychology. There's pattern disruption. There is the geography. Uh, YouTube's uh, always will promote anything that's US-based. It promotes anything listened to or watched more than five minutes long. It's got uh, various adverts and features if it's longer than a certain period of time. There's so many rules in that thing. But all you can really control is smash that notification, hit that subscribe button, yeah. and comment below. Well, okay, well, that seems slightly unfair. Well, our podcasting, podcasting has three algorithmic factors, and you can control all three. Yeah. Subscribe, give me a five-star review, and leave yeah. a comment. And in season one of a podcast, and that's one of the things I will tell everyone, is sure. you should focus on making fans. That's all you want. Forget everything else. You want people that love your content and that when you launch a season two and you say, hey, guys, I now need you. You've already done the five star. You've hit the algorithm. We're doing well. We're getting the traction we need. I now need you to go and join the newsletter because I want a one-on-one -on -one chance to indoctrinate you to love me. And if you love me, then like the Grateful Dead that is still touring to this day, you will buy my merchandise, come to my concerts, come to my events, hire me as a mentor, hire me as a consultant, pay me for a book. I sold my first book, Eventrepreneur, 55,000 copies without paying for a single ad because right. I had a fanship from the Guestless Podcast. That was it. I had a beautiful fanship of the Guestless Podcast that when I said, hey, guys, I need a way to support myself. My, my first big company failure, I, I launched a tech event tech company called Venue Me, which was a massive flop. And um, I didn't know what to do. And the podcast had great audience. And I actually, spoiler alert, season one, I, I closed the podcast. I closed the company. And back of an Uber, I say, forget about it. It's over. And then people started writing to me on LinkedIn saying, we love your show. We think it's funny. We learned a lot. They thought yeah. it was a comedy skit. Meantime, it was my life. Um, and I, I get, <laughs> I get exactly. that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. And I said, um, I, I said, well, what do I do? And 
someone said, well, what do you do if you started a business? And I said, well, the first thing I do is I learn about the people that are doing really well in my sector. So I hired a mentor. I hired a seven-figure podcast mentor, a guy called John Lee Dumas, EO Fire. Um, I started listening to all the seven and eight-figure podcasters, Joe Rogan, Lewis House, Mario Folio, uh, Gary Vee. I started looking, is, is there a blueprint? Is there a, an actual recipe of success? It turns out there is. They're, they're all doing the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I looked at other media that's exactly the same. So let's call it, let's say the biggest TV show in the world is Friends. That's not a surprise. It follows the exact formula yeah. of the best podcast shows. It's exactly 27 minutes long. Imagine watching a Friends episode and one episode is 27 minutes, one episode is 45 minutes, one episode is whatever. It always yeah. dropped on a Wednesday. Wednesday. So it didn't suddenly drop on a Monday, it dropped on a Friday. People I've have broken, every, I've broken all those rules. <laughs> everyone does in the beginning because you don't know the rules. You think it's a free game where everyone gets a free chance to play, and it's not. It is rigged. But if right. you know the rules, you will always yeah. do better. There, there's so many ways to monetize a podcast. When I originally started, I thought there were five, and I thought I was ahead of the pack because most people yeah. knew about three. Then I learned about seven. Then I learned about 12. Then we launched a podcast school where we taught people how to do podcasts. Then we learned another five. And I thought, wow, from my, from my students. And now we had 17. Then I launched a, a media company called The Podcast Company. And then we found another five. And now we're on 24 ways to make money from a single podcast show yeah. from our own students and clients coming back. We've got one client who launched the podcast and then got bought. His company got bought. That, we wouldn't have thought of that as a monetization strand yeah. for starting a podcast. <laughs> but, sell it. <laughs> exactly. I've sold two channels. You know, I, I own a yeah. piece of, of two different companies because of a show. So that's another monetization. But there's so many simple ways. There's by listening to you, Dan, classic example. I was watching you do a great interview with Jeremy King. And I remember thinking to myself, if I do another event, I'm going to have you come in and be a moderator because you're great at spurring questions and drilling down. Well, that's a monetization strand yeah. right there that if you simply said, hey, guys, by the way, if you've enjoyed my podcast, if you'd like me to come to your shows, come to your events, please yeah. go to my website right now and, you know, drop Funnily me an enough, email. I just started promoting myself. <laughs> ah, good. Well, that's the thing. So that's, that's an easy way to monetize. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. you want to start really, really small. You need sure. someone to give away a pound, right? Like buy me a coffee, send it to my PayPal. And then it moves over to, we're now doing cups. I mean, I started with mugs, the guestless podcast. So we did mugs, which were, I think, five quid. Then we moved up to T-shirts. Then we had hoodies. At one stage, we had men's underpants called spunks. They were like the fitting spanks for men. Like, we just kept trying to see yeah. how much would they spend. And we did, then yeah. with a podcast, you can take all these transcripts yeah. and you can create different books under different genres. Maybe one just about entrepreneurship. Maybe one yeah. just about influence. One about events. I did one with all my transcripts about event profs, and I called it hashtag event profs. And we sold a whole bunch of books that didn't take me any extra work. I just took all my audio and transcribed it and then had a, a ghostwriter come in and just do little intros and outros of every chapter. And it was done. And I had another monetization stream. So this is a beautiful, beautiful medium, but it's about understanding the medium, you know, understanding that it's far easier to compete for my ears than my eyes. You've got a better chance of catching me on a podcast than you do of me watching a live stream on, on LinkedIn or watching you on YouTube. We have got so many different opportunities. The average person listens to a podcast for 27 minutes. The average person watches a YouTube for under five minutes. Yeah. Because I don't know whether you feel inspired or, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> you should be inspired. You've got something great. You've done lots of episodes. You this is turning into some sort of training sessions, but you know, I think people are enjoying. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so there's, but there's so many. There's a proliferation of social media channels, right? 
Yeah. Obviously, TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, all the others. And okay, I guess- hold on. But let me let me let me, let me challenge you on that. So I get that a lot. People say to me, "But oh, Jason, there's so many channels. Yeah. Like, what do I do?" And then I say to them, "Do you have a website?" Yeah. One point three billion websites. Why did that not stop you from starting a website? Sure. Like that doesn't make sense. There's only just over a million podcasts. It's the smallest pool or pond you could possibly swim in is starting a podcast. Yeah. Like it's it honestly is. It's only judged on on three things: uh, entertainment, information, and how good is the sound quality. That's it. That's a pretty low barrier to entry to be able to get in and compete with the likes of Joe Rogan, Russell Brand. Yeah. You know these massive superstars who are no better than you when it comes to my listening experience. Because if I've got a bad pair of headphones, they could sound like anyone else. <laughs> they don't get to the, the, the thing of a big fancy Casey Neistat YouTube video with yeah. great editing and music and inspirational quotes. So I think that's another thing people don't realize. A lot of these places, they call you a user for that exact reason. There are only two places or things in the world that causes, calls you a user, a drug dealer and a software company. And you need to ask yourself, why is that? Because they're getting out far more than you think. And they they both make them. the same margins as well. They... Uh, absolutely. <laughs> and I say this as someone getting into software. <laughs> absolutely. Right, moving swiftly on. Um, <laughs> working from anywhere or working from home. So I'm sitting here um, at the end of my bed. Um, and people have been obviously working in all sorts of places over the last year. Um What's your view on sort of remote working in general and the sort of benefits and 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 uh, challenges that people face? I'm a I'm a massive component of working from anywhere. I've always been a massive component of working from everywhere. Now, it's myopic. There's no question about that. It comes from a very singular point of view. One, I have an autoimmune disease, multiple sclerosis, that makes some days incredibly hard to walk out the door, to get out of bed, to change my clothes. There are days when I can't put the buttons on on my shirt. I've got these little clip buttons that I can clip my shirt on so I don't have to worry about the fidgety getting my fingers yeah. to work. So already, the fact that I can work from anywhere, the fact that I can work from my home versus trying to get to an office helps me massively. I once worked for an amazing company, I won't mention it, but they know exactly who they are after listening to this, who bullied me terribly when I first started in the events industry. I knew nothing about events. I didn't think I was capable of being bullied. I'm six foot, I'm pretty strong, I can take care of myself, but I was emotionally pushed and pulled left, right, and center. That doesn't happen when I work from anywhere, when I choose my cohorts, when I choose the atmosphere and space I'm in. I believe that work from anywhere allows more inclusion. I believe it allows more opportunity. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't come with its, its problems and its headaches and its problems like technology and Zoom fatigue, et cetera. But I've now been working from anywhere for over seven straight years. Yeah. And I can tell you now that the the benefits, I mean, last year when everyone was struggling and worked from home, and I'll say this, I escaped just before the lockdown and I worked from Lisbon for a while, and then I worked from Mexico for a while. And it was incredible. And there was these huge communities of people, digital nomads they called, I didn't even know they had a name for them, who are people that travel the world working from anywhere. And yeah. that's just, that's on a mass scale. But the micro scale is, Maybe you think working from home means your home. It doesn't. You can work from a friend's home. They just need to be out if you want to obey the law. You can work from a cafe and book a space and say, I want the space for four hours. Can you do me a deal for 20 bucks and I'll get- But that's you as an individual, right? I, I If we think about companies- Yes. Okay, so I've got a friend's business who's got 20 employees. They've decided not to renew their lease. And actually they're gonna work in various units and we're gonna come on and talk about Copus in a minute, but uh, and how that sort of facilitates that. But 
do you think though a company will lose that sort of togetherness of of, of you know their ethos maybe what the company stands for one of my favorite companies is a company called treehouse yeah. and i actually had them on one of my podcasts i think season three of the guestless podcast a, a gentleman called ryan uh ryan carson's him and, and his and ryan is one of the most incredible people massive staff working from all over the world building an online schooling system now his ethos his culture is unbelievable and yet no one works together none of them have ever worked under the same roof i believe at the time i don't know if that's been changed wow. since. Okay. but and and the more you do research on this the reason that working from anywhere has grown by 420 percent since 2011 is because we realize presenteeism is less important than productivity it's far more important that we get the job done in the best way possible than it is to get the job done on the way that it's always been. And we can create culture by all meeting together at a foreign space or by all being on a systems. In fact, Microsoft is working on a beautiful piece of software called Microsoft Mesh, where we augmently all appear in the same space and we can work as if we're in the same office and we can share pieces of technology and we yeah. can move things across. I mean, if you get a chance, you know, YouTube, Microsoft Mesh, it'll it'll blow your mind. Yeah. It's like we're- Yeah, I've demoed various systems that people that have come up with. I mean. It's almost like um, exhibition halls where years ago they tried to be translated online virtually. So I'm still sort of, for me, the jury's out whether that also would be the case. But I guess technology's moved on that it's sophisticated enough to, to, to replicate that experience and not be uh, sort of contrived. I, you, you said it beautifully there, and that's why I apologize. I interrupted, okay. which is the first rule of podcasting never interrupt the host ever. Um, it's. I was asked once about my work-life balance because I was working a lot. I've written all these books. I was flying around the world. I have three companies and I run all at the same time, all with remote workers all around the world. And I said, there's no such thing as work-life balance. That idea is gone. It's a work-life blend. It has been for ages. It's just that we were scared to admit it. Most of us work at some point from home. We were bringing our work home. When we could, we were jumping on our laptop. We're getting things on our phones. We're doing little yeah. jobs here and there. And all we're going to see going forward, my belief, is a hybrid version of the same thing. We're going to be in the office two days a week. We're going to be in a coffee shop or a restaurant or a venue that we like two hours a week or two days a week. And then we're going to be at home for the other day a week getting work done. It'll just become hybrid. The idea of being forced onto a pack train at rush hour, paying a ridiculous fee that goes yeah. up every single year to get to a place just so I can be seen to do my job is gone. What yeah. we're going to see is an opportunity, and we've seen this with some of the biggest companies in the world. I did a, a blog on LinkedIn just recently about this, just going, work from where you want get the job done we'd like to see you in the office at least one day a week or twice yeah. or three times a month that's it just so i can catch up on you and that piece is very much from what i i found out in my research about mental health about checking in with the worker and making sure that they're okay that it's working for them more than it was actually about presenteeism and coming in and showing that they're still around and they haven't outsourced the job to someone on upwork yeah, I think it takes a leap of faith in the employer as well. Let me um, ask you, you've obviously recently, uh, forgive me, I can't remember exactly the timescale, hmm. set up Copus. Um, can you tell tell us a bit about it and where, where the idea came from and, and who it serves and what it does? Thank you very much. I'd love the opportunity to do yeah. so. It came from the fact that I was working from Lisbon. I was trying to find a co-working space. I found it incredibly elitist. I found it very young. I found that they were doing this thing where like Thursday at three o'clock, they had free beer and, you know, and I thought maybe it was, a, it was like a Portuguese thing. It turns out it's not. I had the same thing in Berlin at a WeWork space. And I was thinking, I didn't come here to get drunk with these guys. They're great people and they're great networking. I can see why co-working is a big thing, but I just want a flexible workspace. 
I want a space that is mine, that I can come in, put my laptop down, get on with my thing, get some coffee and tea if I want it, maybe order a drink if I need to. And that's it. That's all I want. And I yeah. found that incredibly difficult. And each space was more hard. And then I'd go to a cafe that I loved with great seating. I liked the atmosphere. I'd get my job done. In fact, I found a beautiful bar in Mexico called Lido right on the sand. And I'd get my work done and great Wi-Fi. But I felt guilty about the fact that I was trying to make a coffee last for four to five hours. And I, I run venues. Like I know how hard it is for venue to make extra money. And I said to the guy, why couldn't I just pay you 20, 30 quid an hour? I'm quite, I think it was pesos in fairness, 20, 30 pesos an hour. And I stay in the seat and I don't feel guilty. And you know what? Every hour you come over and you ask me if I want coffee or tea or something. And, and that's all I need from you. And he was like, I'd love that. You were sitting at a four table and I feel embarrassed to ask you to leave. Yeah, there is that little, it's always a bit embarrassing, isn't it? When you're just sitting there and some, can I get you something else? And really what they mean to say is, can you bugger off? Do you mind leaving? You're not making me any money. This is a perishable good. You know, and I keep, I keep arguing about this. Like I was the first person in events, apparently at the time, to make a million in 12 months. I did it again, I think a year later, I did a million in five months. And it was about this idea that we have a perishable good of space. That it's, if you don't use it by the day, it's gone. You've got a perishable use in your staff. You've got a perishable use of, of the kitchen, just sitting there making no orders. You spent all this money setting it up. And I was constantly trying to find ways to make money out of it. Whether we were renting our kitchen out to someone else, running events, running a club, running a members club, we just kept piling on these, these ways to monetize yeah. space. And that's all Copus is, is it's a two, it's a platform, it's a marketplace where we've said to anyone, if you've got some unused space, we've got guys who are giving us their garden sheds to say, listen, if someone wants to use it and work from it, I only use it twice a week and it's all set up and it's got, it's got, it's got a bathroom, it's got a printer, it's got everything it needs. And my area is quite popular, people walking up and down and whatever. And I was great, we'll, we'll take that. It's called an additional dwelling unit. We'll take an ADU. But there's restaurants with all this space that no one is using. I used to sit in the Corinthians in the reception and do work. They could have made money off me. Yeah. I could have booked it's it like on a would it be right to say it's like an Airbnb for, I don't know, remote working? 100%. We had a, yeah. I spoke to a fantastic gentleman called Kuba who started um, Eve Mattresses, the fastest company to go from zero to stock market, two years, three months. And he said, oh, it's just, it's the Airbnb for business and business right. spaces. And I was like, exactly. That's all it is. We're giving yeah. everyone an opportunity Amazing. to find a place, book a place, pay for a place, all online or very smoothly with verified profiles so you know who it is. As a venue, you have the chance to go, no, I don't want that person. I don't want that booking. I've got another booking that just came in as an event, which is far bigger. You know, I can see it's a real person versus a fake profile. Um, I can I can just put the space on and see what happens. And we've got two different options. We've got a per month for someone that just wants to take it off the books. So that's not the problem of we of Just Eat or Deliveroo, which takes 40% of every single order that goes out the door. Or we have a percentage that says if we don't bring you any business, we don't get paid. And, we'll, and if we do bring you business, we'll take 14%. So they've always got the option, and they can change. They don't, they're not stuck to one. They could start at a percentage, realize that they're giving us much more money than they expected, and then move over to a per month. And if they've got multitude of venues, then we say to them, pay once per venue per year. And that's it. And if you don't make your money back with us in the first year, let's talk about giving you the second year for free. We are doing this to help the hospitality industry. It's yeah. not a money-making entity for me. I've got two other very successful yeah. businesses. I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. And people can, that are watching, venues or people that want to rent some space, go to copus, K-O-P-U-S dot com uh, for all the information. I can't let you go without talking a little bit about events. Please. Um, obviously, there's an outline specifically in the UK, announcements by DCMS recently or yesterday that, you know, we're open, we're going to be opening. 
how do you think the industry is going to come back? And I know I say industry is broad, but and I know you're sort of venue based and um, I guess more entertainment on more sort of trade shows. Mm-hmm. What's what's your view of how it's going to come back? And maybe is virtual still going to play a part or are we just going to all going to go back to doing what we what we used to do? It's interesting. I've been asked this quite a lot in, in yeah. recent in the last couple of weeks. Um, I actually think it's going to be the, I have an expression, but I don't know, the, the, the age limit of this particular audience. So I'm going to say, I'm going to use a different it's expression. It's going to be over, I, I think it's going to be over the watershed lot. You'll be all right. <laughs> okay. I think we're about to go into the whoring 20s. I think we're about to see the same thing we saw after the prohibition, where all we wanted was to be back in a place together, getting drunk, staying up late, working far too many hours back in venues. I do see a community, a group of people, although I believe it to be the minority, that will say, oh, hold on a second, hold on a second. I don't know how safe that is. I don't know if we should all be jumping on a plane and crossing waters to do events just because it's a destination and our group hasn't been there and maybe it makes for better photographs on Instagram. I think what we'll see is this kind of, we couldn't have it, now we want it more. We couldn't all be together for an expo, why don't we have an expo? We couldn't be together for a product launch. Why don't we get a product launch? I think that will have a certain period of time. And then it'll go like, just like it did with the 2008 financial crisis, it'll go to the procurement and procurement will go, how much are we spending to get drunk and be together? How much are we, are we doing in, in fines and people doing terrible things they shouldn't be doing after the watershed because they're getting drunk in, in a group tightly together, just like they did before. So Let's do some of this hybrid. Let's do some of this virtual. If we can, let's do it as a Zoom. If we can, let's do it as a as a you know a stream yard. If we can, let's take it to a virtual opportunity, a hop and et cetera, et cetera. And then we'll see a just like we're seeing a, a hybrid with work and workspaces, we'll see a hybrid of virtual events and in-person events. But in that beginning stage, I think we're going to be crazy for physical attention. Yeah. We're going to want to be out there. I'm going to want to shake your hand. I'm going to want to hug you. I'm going to want all those things that make our community so good. <laughs> yeah, Let, let's I can't promise you anything. I can't promise you anything. I, I don't know about you, but I've booked about 50 different uh, pub gardens over the next two weeks. So um, I might be able to shake any hands after that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in a gutter. Uh, what event finally are you most looking forward to, Jason? whether it's professional, personal, personal, actually, probably more interesting. <laughs> what? Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, whatever. I, this is this is very embarrassing. I have a haircut booked for next week, Tuesday. I am more excited for that event than right. any event. I've been cutting my own hair for a year. The idea of some professional at Ted Baker yeah. cutting my hair makes me so excited. Outside of that event... Um, I just want, I want to travel. I miss yeah. meeting the people we talk to over, you know, online. A lot of our clients are all over the world. Um, a lot of my readers are all over the world for my books. I want to be able to go over and see some of them. I'd love to see IBTM again. I was a big fan of that event. I love Square Mill. I love the cool venue awards with Wesley and his crew. Um, I'd love to see all of that make a comeback. And um, hopefully in the not too distant future, it will. Jason, Alan, Scott, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to pop you in the in the virtual green room. Don't go anywhere. Have a little chat afterwards. If that's okay, just for a minute or two. So Happy thank to. you so much to Jason. Um, fantastic. Could have spoken to Jason for hours, but he's got more important things to do. Thank you for listening live, guys. Um, thanks for watching on demand. I will also translate this into translate, put it into audio even. Um, so you'll be able to watch that. Go to danassor.com. 
I've got some other fantastic guests coming up. Um, please check the website and the schedule for that. And have a great Thursday evening. <laughs>